Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's time for Sports Medicine. Hello, everyone. Jeremy Driscoll back here again. Today, we're going to be talking about a little bit different of a topic. I know most of the stuff I've focused on is more orthopedic-related type of sports injuries, but today, I actually want to talk about something that's been in the news more recently, and that's exertion-related heat illnesses, specifically with the tragic death of a football player at University of Maryland several months ago. I think this is a really important topic to discuss and, quite frankly, a fairly preventable disease. Now, I'm not going to be talking about your old elderly patient with chronic diseases, with the classic type of heat stroke. We're talking about exertional heat stroke here today, typically in young athletes or military personnel that present with symptoms after strenuous exercise in the heat. Now, heat-related illnesses result in more than 600 deaths a year in the United States, and rates have been noted to increase since 1995 till today. Now, let's briefly talk about the four major types of heat-related exertional illnesses. First is heat cramps. These are very mild. I'm sure all of you have experienced these in the past, but basically muscle cramping, usually in the abdominal wall musculature of the calf muscles, really just due to inadequate intake of fluids and electrolytes. Treatment for these is usually mild. You can use your oral electrolyte solution of choice, but if it's pretty severe, consider IV fluids if you have that capability on professional level. The next topic is briefly heat syncope. This is really due to vasodilation and pooling of venous blood from prolonged standing in the heat. Basically, if we go back to some pathophysiology, we get decreased central venous return, which ultimately leads to decreased cerebral perfusion pressure because we're not maintaining our appropriate cardiac output. And basically, treatment for this is just having them rest in a seated position. Now, the two major topics we're going to focus on today are heat exhaustion as well as heat stroke. Heat exhaustion, now you'll hear and see many different things about a certain temperature cutoff, but we're going to kind of ignore that and we'll talk about more later, as well as the clinical signs and symptoms that really distinguish these two entities. For heat exhaustion, they'll come in complaining of some generalized weakness, nausea, vomiting, malaise, and dehydration. You will not see CNS dysfunction with this compared to heat stroke. This is usually due to either water depletion or salt depletion. With water depletion, you have inadequate fluid replacing to match your fluid loss from sweat. With salt depletion, this is someone who's chugging large volumes of hypotonic solution, so large volumes of water with inadequate salt intake. So it's really important to make sure you're drinking an electrolyte solution in these cases. Now, heat stroke, this is typically associated with very similar symptoms of heat exhaustion. However, you will have CNS dysfunction. We'll talk more about that and what all that means, as well as severe organ dysfunction. So first thing, let's talk about heat exhaustion. Now, like I previously mentioned, this occurs via water depletion or sodium depletion or a combination of the both. It can occur in the elderly or in persons working in hot environments, but we're going to mostly be talking about athletes who get involved with heat exhaustion during practices in the summer or during games from overworking. Some signs and symptoms you may have seen, it's usually tachycardia, sweating, especially when this is associated with exercise, headache, fatigue, dizziness. You can get orthostatic hypotension, similar to heat syncope, with normal mental status. And that is the most distinguishing feature between this and heat stroke. Mentation is completely normal in heat exhaustion. This is typically associated with heat exposure, with temperatures around 37 to 40 degrees Celsius associated with those symptoms. Now, you can get labs on these patients, and if you do, you will definitely see signs of hemoconcentration. You may see various electrolyte abnormalities, 
with both hyponatremia, eunatremia, or hypernatremia. And this is all depending on the ratio of fluid and electrolyte loss to intake. Now, treatment for heat exhaustion, number one important thing, get them out of the heat stress environment. If they are outside in the sun, don't just have them sit on the bench or sit on a chair. Get them out of the sun and into a nice, cool, air-conditioned environment. Now, you may need to replace their volume or electrolytes based on labs that you obtain once they get to the hospital. But if you are on the field, you can start by just giving them oral electrolyte solution. And if you do have the capability and have medical personnel available that are trained to perform this, can give saline as well through the IV fluids. However, there will be a future topic discussing this, so be on the lookout. Now, aggressive cooling typically isn't needed for heat exhaustion. However, if their temperature is greater than 39 degrees Celsius, I would consider pursuing these measures, which we'll talk about in our heat stroke segment. Now, ultimate disposition for these patients usually can go home once they're feeling a little bit better and they've cooled off, but you can consider admission if there's severe electrolyte abnormalities. Now let's talk about heat stroke. This is truly a heat-related emergency with loss of thermoregulatory mechanisms. The management and focus of management should be immediate rapid cooling and ideally in the pre-hospital setting. Mortality can be anywhere from I've seen 21 to 63% and can approach even 30% despite treatment. The hallmark is usually an elevated temperature, usually greater than 41 degrees Celsius, as well as multi-organ dysfunction. However, heat exhaustion can have temperatures greater than 104 Fahrenheit. Now, I got a question for you listeners out there. Can you diagnose someone with heat stroke if their temperature is less than, let's say, 40 degrees Celsius in the ED? I would say yes, and this is why I'm trying to explain and hope everyone gets one thing from this, is that the temperature the patient comes in with will not define whether this is a heat stroke or heat exhaustion. Because cooling usually begins in the pre-hospital setting, so when they come to your facility, they may actually be less than this temperature and even have signs and symptoms still consistent with heat stroke. Now, you'll typically progress from heat exhaustion to heat stroke when you get endogenous heat production in combination with absorption of the ambient heat, and this exceeds your body's ability to dissipate heat through their normal adaptive mechanism that's sweating, hyperventilation, and peripheral vasodilation. And the extent of neurologic injury and mortality is directly related to the peak temperature as well as the duration of their hyperthermia. Now, symptoms with heat stroke are very similar to heat exhaustion. You're going to have your typical malaise, not feeling well. However, CNS dysfunction is going to be very evident. This is patient coming in confused and altered. They may be in a coma. They may have an ataxic gait. They may be seizing. They may be hallucinating and look like they're intoxicated on some sort of substance. The only thing they are high on is extreme sunlight. Anhydrosis is frequently present. However, sweating can be found into 50% of patients with heat stroke. Now, you may see signs of end organ dysfunction as previously discussed. And, you know, when your body gets really hot, it likes to shunt all of the blood to the highly important organs like the brain. So, unfortunately, your gut will suffer. You may get GI bleeds from intestinal ischemia. You may see compartment syndrome. And then most importantly, you may see hepatic injury. And hepatic injury is so common that if this is not present, you might want to consider an alternative diagnosis. Now, workup. Most of the times when patients come in with heat stroke, they are going to get the full gamut. This is going to be an ECG first. You'll typically see sinus tachycardia, which is self-limited. However, you may see signs of ischemia like T-wave inversions or ST depressions, which are usually transient. I think it's very important to get an accurate core temperature as well as a continuous core measure. So usually these patients are so altered, they're going to be coming in and you're going to be intubating them 
pretty quickly as well as putting in a Foley cath. And ideally, if you can get a bladder temperature sensor, that would be great. You'll get basic labs like a blood glucose, CBC, CMP. It's really important to get those liver enzymes as I discussed about. You'll probably get a blood gas and check your lactate. Uh, important also is DIC. They get profound coagulopathies with heat strokes, so be sure to check and send for a fibrinogen, D-dimer, PT, and INR. And then very commonly associated this is rhabdomyolysis, and you'll also be obtaining a creatine kinase and again a urinalysis to check for myoglobinuria. Also consider getting a chest x-ray as well as a CT of the brain and consider lumbar puncture. And I say this because I actually had a case very recently where we thought someone came in what was heat stroke, which turned out to be meningitis. This patient was going in. He was a young, healthy guy. He was playing basketball with a friend. Um, and it wasn't too hot outside, but he'd known to seize and pass out and brought in temperature 104. Everyone thought this was heat exhaustion. Uh, however, he ended up getting an LP in the medical ICU and found out he actually had viral meningitis. So be sure to address all your other etiologies that may have provoked this heat stroke. Now, management of heat stroke. This is going to be your ABCs. Be sure if you need to establish a definitive airway to do that quickly. Get them out of the environment. If they're already at your hospital, don't consider that. But if you are on the field working, make sure to remove them from that hot environment immediately. Next thing, establish good IV access. IV fluids are going to be key for renal protection as well as avoiding rhabdomyolysis. There's really no good goal as far as what to measure for, but what I can see is the best evidence supports urine output as the best target measurement, usually about 2 to 3 milliliters per kilogram per hour. And rhabdo, we'll talk about in another segment, but briefly it's mostly due to intracytoplasmic deposition of calcium that disrupts myocyte cell membranes causing ATP depletions. And your two most commonly abnormal laboratory results you'll see is a hyperphosphatemia as well as hypocalcemia because of this. And like I said, precise guidelines do not exist, but the goal CK should be a level less than 1,000 units per liter. And just to mention, there is really no target value if they do come in with an elevated creatinine. However, you may see acute tubular necrosis from myoglobinuria. Now, how do we treat these patients? The mainstay of treatment for heat stroke is cooling. And when I say cooling, I mean rapid cooling. If you have a giant ice bath ready to go, grab your patient and dunk them inside. This reduces morbidity and mortality and should be started ideally in the pre-hospital setting if no other life threats exist. The goal is to cool them to about 102 degrees Fahrenheit within 10 minutes. However, there's pretty weak data suggesting what the endpoint temperature management for this, but there is some thought that cooling beyond this can cause what's called overshoot hypothermia. And this is one of the few instances where antipyretics have no role, so you do not give Tylenol for these fevers. Now let's talk about a few techniques that's going to be good for cooling these patients. Like I said, rapid cooling is ideal, and cool water immersion is going to be the number one treatment of choice. Basically, if you have a large pool of ice water or bath of ice water that you have at your facility, immersion to the body in the level of about their torso or their neck is going to be the best for the treatment of this patient. This is really ideal, especially in the young, healthy, athletic patients that come in for exertional heat stroke. You can apply ice packs diffusely over the body, and I mean diffusely, not just in the groin, not in the axilla or the neck, but everywhere. There may be similar benefit compared to immersion in ice water. However, there's less data supporting this. Now, if you're a solo practitioner out at a single practice emergency department with not access to these large ice baths at your hand, 
you can consider other measures in the meantime when trying to set up for that. And this is going to be evaporative cooling or convection cooling. What you can do is you spray the patient from head to toe with tepid water while bringing in your biggest fans as possible. This is really easy to apply in the emergency department while you're trying to coordinate other methods of cooling. However, some disadvantage include that this is slower method than immersion with a slightly higher morbidity and mortality. Now we get to the fun stuff that's never actually really practiced, and this is invasive cooling. And this is techniques such as cardiopulmonary bypass or VV ECMO or even ice water lavage. I've heard of uh, rectal ice water lavages, bladder ice water lavages, bilateral chest tubes with intrapleural ice water lavages. However, there is really no good data supporting this, and I have not seen this or really heard of anyone doing this in this current state. Ideally, bottom line, rapid immersion cooling in an ice water bath if possible, but in the meantime, if you can spray them down with some tepid water with big fans, that will also help cool this patient down. Now back to my talk, a little bit about my meningitis case. You may consider giving antibiotics in addition to IV fluid hydration, as it is pretty difficult to rule out infection as a predisposing factor to the development of heat stroke. Now some complications. This patient is refractory hypotensive. What can you do? Well, usually patients are just vasodilated and can respond to small fluid boluses, and their hypotension should improve with cooling. However, if they do not have responsive fluids, you can consider vasopressors. And this is a case I would consider actually more first-line dopamine or dobutamine because most of our other vasopressors are peripheral vasoconstrictors, specifically norepi. And this is really not ideal when you are trying to cool a patient off because most of heat is released by vasodilation. So by giving them something like norepinephrine, you can redirect blood flow away from the skin and actually diminish their cooling. Now, other complications include severe electrolyte derangements, and then there's also hematologic complications like DIC or abnormal bleeding. And sometimes if patients are on anticoagulations, this may be an indication for reversal. Also, hepatic injury, which is usually always reversible with time, as well as renal failure, ARDS, and then seizures. And ideal medications for seizures in these patients will be benzodiazepines. Now, all of these patients are going to require admission, and likely they will be intubated and sent to the ICU. All right, well, I hope you learned something today about heat-related illnesses in the setting of exertion. This is, I think, a very relevant topic and something that is very preventable today. So if you are on the field as a healthcare provider or even as a coach, teammate listening to this, be aware of your fellow teammates or players, as well as the emergent need to seek medical attention if concerns for heat exhaustion or heat stroke. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. This is Sports Medicine Corner. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. CMC out.